Hello and welcome to Bramcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society, Trinity College Dublin. My name is Stephen and I'll be your host for today. Today I'm joined by Mick Clifford. Mick Clifford is an award-winning journalist and special correspondent with the Irish Examiner. He was awarded News Brands Journalist of the Year in 2016 and Journalist of the Year by Tonight with Vincent Brown in 2014. He's written several books, including A Force for Justice, The Mars McCabe Story, Bertie Ahern and the Drumcondor Mafia, and most recently co-authored David McDonald's biography, Unlocked, an Irish prison officer's story. He hosts his own podcast weekly, the Mick Clifford Podcast, with the Irish Examiner. Before we start, a quick thank you to EY, our sponsors, for their continued support. Mick, thank you for coming on as our inaugural guest. Not at all, Stephen. Delighted and thanks very much for having me. Great. So tell me, Mick, how does a civil engineering graduate end up working with the Irish Examiner? Big question. All right. I'm often asked that, Stephen. Uh, as you say, I studied engineering. I, I worked as an engineer for a few years, but I always... And then I went wandering, as a lot of people do in their 20s. I went off to Australia and Southeast Asia. And I always knew I wasn't doing something that either I had great aptitude for or ultimately great interest in. And I developed an interest in writing. And um, that was really what brought me to it. I came back then and I there was a mass, even though it wasn't, a, or it was a master's, excuse me, in, in DCU, an MA in journalism. And I did that. And... Um, I realised I, I, I found a, a home. I always tell people a very quick story. Um, you know, Matt Cooper, who hosts uh, his programme, The Last Word on Today FM, I knew Matt through a mutual friend. And very soon after I started, I, I'd written a piece and uh, I brought it to Matt. Said, would you have a look at that? He said, all right. And Matt very generously did. And, and as he was going through it, he, he made a reference to your work. And I didn't say it to him at the time, but I was going through my head there at the, in that instant was, What's he talking about work? This isn't work. I enjoy doing this. So I tell people I haven't worked a day in my life since then. And was there a master plan when you got did you did you intend to become like a special correspondent, a big journalist no, or playing a None whatsoever. I, I started off and it was pure chance. One of the great things with the course I did was they organized for a placement in a media organization. And I ended up in the Star newspaper. Now I'd never read the star. I wasn't a fan of tabloids and I was a bit disappointed because another newspaper that I had done stuff for apparently came in, but they came in too late. But what I will say is this, I ended up working there as a sub editor for two years. And in terms of the craft of writing, a sub editor in a tabloid newspaper, it's difficult to beat it in terms of what you can learn and the training. And people often hear that. And I think, you know, they associate tabloids with, colourful headlines what have you but the, the mechanics of the writing remember you are writing for an audience that isn't necessarily interested in um, flowering language so you have to write concisely and to the point and in a manner that will draw in a reader and for that reason it was a fantastic training for me and I've heard that from other people too Okay, so you've worked in the news business before social networks came to prominence. Yeah. Do you think that newspapers will ever be able to regain the credibility that they once had, and I put to you, that they've lost in the age of social media? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And first of all, when you say credibility they've lost, I'm, I question that there might be credibility. They, they, they have lost the capacity to influence in terms of their reach and, and the influence they may have. And that of itself may not be a bad thing. Maybe, and cases often made, there was too much of the gatekeeper, so to speak, that if you wanted access to the media, all media, we're going back before, you know, social media, what have you, you know, newspapers provided a, a, a very good outlet. There were particular standards. They made aspirations in a general sense towards balance, and some people might dispute that. But you could also make the argument that it was an exclusive entry in terms of people's access to the media. So now you have social media and newspapers will never, again, have the influence they had in that capacity. But in an online guise, a paper, like a very obvious example, all the papers now are online, but an obvious success story is the Irish Times. My paper, the Irish Examiner, are trying to follow it as well. But as an online entity, 
it can still have a major impact and, and be a major media organisation. But in the overall sense, social media has ensured that there's a complete fracturing of the media landscape. There's positive and negative in that. I suppose by loss of credibility, what I mean is there is now so many new sources of information with social media that are not even necessarily from news organizations. Do you foresee that media landscape growing ever more fractured or will credible organizations regain hold as they catch up with the times? Yeah, I, I, I don't know how fractured it can get. Um, the, the, you see, I suppose credibility in that sense is a thing now that has to be won, whereas perhaps it was received for a long time when you had fewer media outlets, as for example, just, you know, 10 newspapers or whatever, a couple of radio stations. So it has to be won now. It has to get to a point where those who are engaging online look at this enough to realise, well, this seems to be credible. Do you know what I mean? I think it's probably going that way. Well, what if I put to you that it doesn't take much for it to be one. I mean, you think of the fringes of political discourse and they believe all sorts of kinds of news without the source of that news doing anything to win their credibility. They're believed nonetheless. Absolutely. And that is a huge problem. Um, and those outlets, when we say credibility, they certainly have traction. I just wonder how much credibility they have. But you're right. that, And we've seen that in particular in, in this country in recent months with the type of stuff that's being spread around by far-right groups, lies, basically, that people are taking on board. And that is a huge problem. But I, well, sorry, I don't suspect, I hope that one fallout from that is that people, once things settle down a bit, people will want to go to credible sources to know it's something they can believe. While you have a fractured political environment in which the likes of the far-right begin to thrive, that is definitely a problem. Uh, and, and this business is spreading misinformation online. But it's not just the far right of spreading misinformation online. An awful lot of people do. And what I'm talking about, for example, if you look at the way things can be completely misrepresented and used on social media in a particular way, that gives a completely different impression to what was conveyed. In other words, what I'm trying to say, sorry, is say, for instance, I wrote a 2,000-word piece on Oh, anything, take any subject. And somebody took a line out of that and put that on Twitter. And that took hold among those who'd be of a very similar political or that kind of orientation of the person who would have done it. That gives a completely different impression than what was meant by the original thing. That goes on all the time as well. So you have all of that. But where it's really dangerous is that area where you're spreading a political agenda like the far right and it's designed to harm people. And things, people have not got to grips with that yet and particularly the technology companies haven't. So news organisations are often subject to libel actions, often by serial litigators, people like Dennis O'Brien, Sean Quinn, many politicians that are using the laws to prevent bad press coverage. Libel laws in Ireland have been condemned by the European Court of Human Rights, the Council of Europe, the European Commission, and a rake of other NGOs. In your opinion, how pernicious are the libel laws in Ireland to, to democracy? I can't give a neutral opinion on that because I've been subject to them. And I think they're appalling. Um, if I write something, and I'm relatively secure in my facts, yet I've made an error somewhere, and I get sued. Unless the issue is one of huge principle, the media organisation I'm working for are going to settle that action to make the person go away. So what I'm saying is that it doesn't, what, the ultimate arbiter is not whether something is factually correct, whether you intended it to be correct, whether you're saying something in the public interest, it's basically can somebody who's a litigant cause enough trouble and drag out through the legal system long enough that it's going to cost far less money to make them go away than to stand and fight. The other element to that is this. If on a matter of principle you decide to go to court and defend what you've written or broadcast, if you win, unless your opponent is somebody of great means, you won't even recover your costs. So if I write something, it's challenged, 
It turns out I'm absolutely correct the whole time. It went to a court. A judge or a jury decided I was right. My organisation still loses possibly hundreds of thousands of euro because they will not be able to recover the costs that the court award them. And that, the, the, the phrase they use, it has a chilling effect on the media. What will it take for legislation to be put in to change this? Because if politicians themselves are using the libel laws to their benefit, one wonders short of a referendum, how it's ever going to change. Yeah, it, 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 uh, that's exactly the point. Um, the odd politicians accept that the concept of freedom of speech is vital in a democracy. Some politicians, a few, they'll all give lip service, to, but there are some, to be fair, who genuinely believe it. Others will certainly give lip service to it until it becomes subjective and they're subjected to some investigation by the media that they don't like. And therefore, as you say, there's no uh, incentive for them to legislate properly. The other problem is the general public, by and large, don't grasp or care about it. And I, I, I can't say I blame them. If you, went to, if you went out there in the street and you got 10 people and you explained the libel laws to them and how this was affecting uh, free speech, I'd make a guess that seven, eight, nine of them would say, God, that's terrible. I think there should be a change. That's not how we work, unfortunately. People don't have the time. Uh, they, they don't have the interest to that extent to address it. So it remains a, a very big problem. There have been some changes lately, but it remains a very big problem in terms of, of, of our laws versus most in the Western world. There's a growing phenomenon today where news reporting is less and less decipherable from broadcasting or opinion pieces. I'll put to you an extreme example in the States where, you know, Fox News at prime time, or even to a lesser extent or more moderate CNN, has ambient commentary on the news reporting that would be alien to us listening to the 6-1 news or the 9 o'clock news. Does this matter? Is this a problem in Ireland? Should we be worried about it? I don't think it's a big problem yet, but you go back to the online environment. Online facts and opinion are mixed all the time because unless you're dealing with an organisation, there is no incentive for somebody to provide balance. And that mixing of comment and facts is... Sometimes newspapers are guilty of it. Perhaps I may have been guilty of it myself now and again. But you try to keep them separate, the news reporting from the, the analysis stroke comment. But it is definitely an issue. Thankfully... No, and people will dispute this, but in my opinion, we are not politically entrenched in our media the way they are in either the UK or the USA. Even though in newspaper sense, look to the UK, the influence that the US newspaper um, organisations had on Brexit, notwithstanding the overall declining influence of newspapers in a general sense, was huge. And the overriding thing about Brexit in that respect is that people were totally uninformed about what they were getting into. So you have a scenario where the media organs charged with informing people, it would appear deliberately misinformed them, and the outcome was Brexit. Now, they aren't completely to blame for that, but there was an input into it. So that's an example of the kind of uh, bias or entrenched media you can have. I know people say that, that is here and you'll often see it online MSM the mainstream media in the derogatory area and it, people entitled their opinion my opinion is I don't think it's anywhere near as uh, entrenched whatsoever uh, than it is in other countries which reflects other elements of our society as well that are not as um, polarised as they are in other countries I guess on that point to what do you credit the absence of a far right party gaining consequential hold in Ireland, like the, the likes of UKIP or the Front National or a Trump-esque party in Ireland. Do we take it for granted or is Ireland like so many things late to the party on this? Six million dollar question. Uh, first of all, is Ireland late to the party in this? Yes. That doesn't mean we're not going to arrive. If you look at it, that kind of right-wing party phenomenon has been rising throughout Europe and the US, for instance, over the last 20, 30 years, accelerated probably in the last 10 years. Now, there's a number of reasons for that, not least the fallout from the economic crash in 2008, 
the issue of immigration, the issue whereby large tracts of countries are being laid to waste as a result of technology, you know, where you used to big industries and that. All of these things fed into that. Brexit, arguably, it was a far-right project. Donald Trump, quite obviously, was a far-right project. If you look at most countries in Europe, there's been a rise of far-right parties. A couple of things in this country, to my mind, so far, and I'll just come to that in a minute, but up until this point or in the last year or two, the things that would have gone against that, one is we had a tradition, unlike a lot of developed countries, of emigration from the country. Uh, we, and we did not have a major tradition of immigration into the country until the last 20 years. So it wasn't going to be a big issue, immigration, in that sense. Where I thought at the time it might turn into, and again, it was proved wrong, thankfully, was after the crash, because we had a huge number of people from other countries in here, particularly from Eastern Europe. And I thought, you know, with a massive unemployment. No, it didn't happen. So you have all of that that fed into it that ensured we were not going to go down that route. Another big element to it was uh, Sinn Féin and their positioning. If this country was heading towards uh, that kind of a populist right-wing party making hay, so to speak, Sinn Féin would have been the obvious example. They were anti-establishment, they were outsiders, they were very strong in working-class areas. They would have been the obvious vehicle and similar parties with their background in that respect were the vehicle in other countries that turned into far-right parties. To be fair to Sinn Féin, they studiously avoided it. They did quite the opposite. They made it clear that they were going to stand against anybody who tried to marginalise or target minorities, whether that be immigrants or travellers or anybody of that nature. So to be fair to Sinn Féin, they played a considerable role in that as well. Now, move it forward to now. Now things have changed on on two fronts. One, Sinn Féin is now becoming a far more mainstream party because it is moving to a point where it hopes to acquire power and it is no longer sort of on the margins. It is no longer exclusively concerned with working class areas and that kind of thing. So their eye is off the ball in that respect. You can't blame them for it. They're, They're expanding and all. So that bulwark, so to speak, is no longer there. The second thing that I think is very big is nobody could predict this war in Ukraine. Last year we had 80,000 plus people coming into the country. You're talking about a scenario that bar a couple of years back in the early 80s, you might have been talking about three, four, five thousand. 5,000. Uh, the housing crisis feeds into it to a certain extent, but I don't think to the extent that's being suggested on the basis of the numbers that are here. So now you have a scenario between it all whereby that sentiment that wasn't here in much numbers before appears in some areas to be growing, not on the basis of people being innately anti-immigrant, but because of all the other issues that come about upsetting their lives, uh, places being turned into uh, reception centres, all of that sort of thing. So the big question now is whether all of that is going to lead to the rise of some kind of a a so-called far-right element. The first test of that will be in the local elections, which I think are due in 2025, I think, 24 or 25. That'll be the first test of it, because any time somebody from that wing of politics attempted to run before, they did abysmally. They literally collected hundreds of votes. Nobody ever got elected. So it will be interesting to see what happens in that respect. You have to hope it doesn't, but... What's happened in other countries suggested could well. And another thing that will impact on that as well is how immigration in here, whether it be through asylum seekers, through the war in Ukraine, is handled over the coming years. So we're at a kind of a a dodgy position. Uh, I don't subscribe to the notion that successive governments here down the years are to blame for that. They took their eye off the ball. To me, it has far more to do with principally the war in Ukraine and what that has meant for... And sorry, apart from the war in Ukraine, the international protection element of immigration into this country, the asylum seekers, has increased threefold in recent years. So between those that, along with, as I say, Sinn Féin not being in a position to perform the uh, duty it did prior to that when it was far more concentrated on its uh, maintaining its power in, in, in some working class areas. So we've avoided it thus far. Though there seems to, it seems to be bubbling now for all the reasons you've explained. 
going forward, if even if you don't blame the governments, the successive governments for it, do you think that the status quo of government, a kind of center center right government, would be better equipped at preventing it? Or if Sinn Fein get into power, and though they're not as anti-establishment as it used to be, they would be a comparatively left-wing government. Do you think the more left-wing government or a continuation of a centrist right-wing government would be better at fighting the far right, preventing them? I genuinely don't think that matters that much, unfortunately. Um, Unfortunately. Because, again, if you look to other countries, that doesn't seem to have been a big issue. I mean, leave aside... Brexit, for instance, if Labour had been in power in the UK over the last 10 years, would it be any less right-wing or populist in areas than it is? I don't know. I, I, I'm not letting the government off the hook, so to speak, when I say that. But I think what's at work is far bigger than the government that support. Now, you will find people on the left or on the far left, who will suggest that the current government enabled the far right to blossom or to start coming. I can't see that, personally, and I accept people, some people are saying that. I can't really see that, you know. Um, you, you, you can blame the government for a lot of conditions that might have exacerbated things like the housing crisis, quite obviously. But if we didn't have a, have a housing crisis, would it be that much different? I mean, again, look to Western Europe and what has happened there and factor in that we have, in fairness, a more unique culture because of our history in this country. Even at that, I'm not sure that the government that's in would make that much of a difference. Um, it'll take a lot of other uh, elements to how society reacts not, and we talk about what might fight it. A very obvious one, and it's a crazy sign of the world we're in, but a very obvious one is technology companies. If they genuinely stopped the circulation of the kind of hate material, and I accept they say they're making an effort, I accept that totally, but the real effort in their minds would cost them in terms of, of, of people coming to their platforms and therefore they're not willing to go that far. On the point of social media companies, I noticed you never bought the blue check mark on Twitter. Is that in solidarity with the only also living of CNN? No, no, my fellow, my fellow Carsevine man. I'll be honest with you, Stephen. Is that I? I didn't think of mine. I'm, I'm very, I'm very primitive when it comes to social media. I've got, I, I've, I've been very naive in social media. I have got hammered sometimes. I mean pylons. No, don't get me wrong. Nothing like the abuse that uh, female journalists have got and, and, and a lot of public figures. But I've got completely hammered and I realise I'd have to hold my hand up and say some of my was my own fault for reacting to people when I should have just stayed out of it. I mean, by, by this I mean if I wrote a piece and going back again, someone will take out and then quick story. I wrote a piece last August about this report that was issued that said it was analysing the far right in Ireland. It was as part of a project by an American organisation. Now, this report said there was about 10 major organisations in Ireland that constituted the far right. It included the Iona Institute, which is a conservative Catholic organisation. It included uh, this crowd, other resistance of St. Pius, which I think are some kind of a tridentine Catholic crowd who believe in the Latin Mass or they're a break-off from that. There was another crowd who have issues to some extent with interpretation of uh, gender equality legislation and that kind of thing. All these people who have absolutely zero to do with the far right as we understand what they're at now in terms of immigration. It also suggested that a, a meeting in Uchtarard and Galway there a number of years ago was nearly like a far right rally of 2,000 people. Now, I wrote a piece saying this is a complete distortion. The far right is nothing like this, etc., I got hammered for it, that's fair enough. But anytime I write about the far right now or anytime it comes up in social media, there will be people who go on social media and saying, Clifford said there was no far right. What's he saying now? Total, total distortion. Of what I said. And by the way, the same crowd who were involved in that report that I critiqued had a conference there last week where one of their people who monitor the far right suggested that there was about 25 or 30 serious 
activists uh, perpetrating a lot of this stuff from three different organisations. If you'd said that last August, I wouldn't have written a piece at all. But that's just an example. It's not. I'm not saying about and that happened to me. That's an example of the distortion that can happen on social media. One of your most well-known cases was being at the vanguard of breaking the Morris McCabe whistleblower story. After the full decade that McCabe went through trying to get justice, are you satisfied that such a miscarriage of justice won't happen within Garda Shikhan again? No, uh, I don't think you ever can be. Um, the other thing was Morris McCabe was put through hell, but he came out the other side. And I think Morris would say himself he was lucky in a number of ways, not least uh, the person his wife was, who was a massive support to him and, and his legal team as well. Um, but a lot of others went down the same route were not fortunate. Notwithstanding what, what, what the McCabe's were put through, um, and the other thing is that those kind of scandals within institutions like in Garda Shikana, they can often surface in different ways. One other thing about the Morris McCabe case, I would say, I don't believe the whole truth came out, notwithstanding a very good tribunal, but they always operate within parameters. I don't believe the whole truth came out there as to what he was subjected to or who was targeting him or who knew about it or who spread vile rumours. But the most obtainable truth by tribunal came out fair enough but um, no they're still we're not some people try to portray this country as a failed state a corrupt state it, it isn't that doesn't mean that there isn't corruption of various kinds that go on here they do but they're within a context but as a journalist I still believe in rooting it all out but when you hear people say we're one of the most corrupt countries in the world. That's objectively just not true. But we we need to aspire for standards that we're as least corrupt as is possible. And with all the reporting of the ordeal that McCabe went through and all the other reporting of Garda malpractice, lack of ethics in many cases, and Garda Shikhana maintained an incredible public appro- approval rating. The most recent public attitude survey put it at around 90% thrust in the Gardaí. You contrast this with other European countries where the average is hovering around 60-70. In the States, you'd never break 50%. The, the defund the police movement, however transient, never caught hold in Ireland. What accounts for this unique, if not startling, approval rating in the Guards? And did they deserve it? Very good question. Um, if they deserve it... If the public approve, and, and, and the, the survey you're quoting there, Stephen, I'm not sure, was, it, was that a, a Garda survey or not? Yeah. Now, I, I, I caution there. Within that caution, though, let's, for example, say it's not 90. Let's say it's even 70. Let's, you know, go, go. that's still huge. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. There's a couple of aspects to that. One of them is this, very similar to the church in one way. In general terms, if people do they approve of the church or, 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 or that kind of thing and you know in today's secular world be relatively negative you go into communities and ask them do you approve of your local priest and I'm talking about people now who wouldn't necessarily be daily communicants or anything I'm talking about people who just interact with the priest on a local basis you, you get a much higher uh, level of approval similarly with the guards most people experience the guards through their local guards and as you point out very rightly, unlike a lot of other European countries, the Irish general society has a good relationship with the Gardaí. The Gardaí are embedded in society and they relatively trust them to that extent. And that's a positive aspect. However, when something goes wrong, if your average ordinary community, your average ordinary person in the community, law-abiding person, gets into an issue over the guards and how the guards are handling it, their view will be totally transformed as an individual. But then again, are there enough of those individual cases that it feeds through? And the other thing is, you know, most Gardaí, they're farmers' sons and daughters. They're from the cities. They're, they're, they're factory workers' sons and daughters. They're teachers' sons and daughters, whatever. Uh, you know, they're part of the community as well. The problem is, and this is repeatedly comes up, and I've seen this over 20 years and more, there are certain practices that when they occur, the attitude is not root them out, make somebody accountable, and this will ensure it won't happen again. The attitude is generally brush it under the carpet 
and that's generally done by people who are afraid it'll affect their promotion prospects. And inevitably, and it's the same in every organisation, every part of the world, that will mean there'll be a repeat. And, and that kind of thing is the real problem. So do you think the prog- any progress that has been made in the guards, is that a result of a change in culture of the guards? Or the main offenders, the worst offenders have just been shown the door? No, I, I, I think there has been changes in culture. It's been incremental. Um, most of people who are listening to this will quite likely never have heard of the heavy gang. The heavy gang were a loose group of Gardaí, particularly in the 70s and 80s, who were dispatched when there was particularly paramilitary crime associated with paramilitary activity and also serious crime like murder. And, you know, they got a reputation for effectively beating confessions out of suspects. Now, it was appalling stuff. It eventually stopped. You wouldn't have that kind of thing going on today. Um, there's other stuff you wouldn't have going on as well. Blatant corruption or anything of that nature. And when you see that blatant corruption, there was an example recently of a retired superintendent. The guards will go after him. The straight fellas will go after him. No question in the world, you know. And there are many guards in there who go in. And or Sorry, let me put it another way to you. The vast majority of guards who go in there, I firmly believe, go in there with the intention of doing the very best they can in every way. But when you come across aspects of the job that grind you down, your 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 resistance to that wanes as it would with anybody. And having said all that, there have been cultural changes. They brought in an outsider, Drew Harris, and he has made some changes. There's other things I'd be critical of how he's handled them. But there have been cultural changes, but I just wonder whether it's fast enough. You mentioned in your book that you were informed at one stage by an unnamed person, unnamed in the book, that your phone was being tapped. What effect, if any, did that have on the way you did your reporting and on your mental state in general? Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you a good story. I, I, I mentioned one person, a number of people told me, and I, I've, on one occasion, uh, this person I know who works in academia rang me and she said, listen, there's something really important i got to tell you. And I said, oh, great. Like, I thought, you know, God, there's another angle to this story. I'm going to get something serious here. And then we arranged to meet and we couldn't meet. So we met the second time. And, you know, I was, this is, um, geez, I could be onto something here. This could be a big yarn altogether. So we sat down and she was very genuine. And, and she says, look, I have this in good authority. Your phone is being tapped. And I just went, ah, Jesus Christ. I mean, will you tell me something I don't know? No. Do I think my phone was tapped? On balance, probably not. The other problem with that is, if it was, the technology is so advanced now, you wouldn't know. When I used to ring my mother at the height of this stuff, I'd say, ma'am, say hello to the lads here, that kind of thing, you know. I was careful in some instances. In most, I wasn't. But if there was something really sensitive, I'd either, and there was only two or three people that I could have been talking about in that respect, I'd say, look, or, and actually, when I was talking to people who were knowledgeable of the guards, they were reluctant to talk to me on the basis they thought we were tapped. So it could well have been. But I can't say it had a psychological impact on me. What did have, in terms of that story, was you write a story and you're not going to sleep because you're afraid, A, were you sure you were fair to some everybody, and B, have you have you done something that's um, that's not going to follow through? Just very briefly, I could on, on that. For a long time, I th- I think it's fair to say I, I I was the only one following this stuff, and I couldn't believe that nobody else was. And I started thinking, um, I'm I'm wrong. Jesus Christ, I can't be the only one seeing this, and I lost an awful lot of sleep over it. And then I was going into a radio studio, and I bumped into. Conor Brady, who's a former editor of the Irish Times, he's also a former chair of the Garda Ombudsman Commission. And I know him vaguely. I'd, I'd interviewed him once when he wrote a book. And he came over to me and he said, um, oh, I said, you, geez, you're doing work there. Have you spoken to McCabe? And I, I was reticent because I didn't want to say who I was speaking to. And he says to me, he says, I'll tell you one thing, he said, he's a, he's a guy of serious substance. He's somebody people should listen to. I'm not joking yet. I nearly collapsed on my knees in front of him. It meant, it's not me. I'm not crazy. 
quite obviously somebody like Conor Brady thinks this there's something to it and it just so happened about a week later Brady went on the radio and said something to that effect which changed a lot of people's minds but it just shows you that just because you're the only one doing it it doesn't necessarily mean you're crazy no there are also times when you're the only one doing it and you are crazy but distinguishing between those is a different matter again you know was there any time in your career where you were fearful as you were pursuing your story? Fearful of my phone being tapped or fearful in general? Fearful in general. There are... Not in any organised, sustained way. But, I mean, there are occasions, like, for example, I've, I've written a fair bit on prisons, and there was an occasion where I was meeting a prison officer in a car park at night, and it was pretty serious stuff we're talking about and he was under the impression he was being targeted by individuals who as associations with criminals and I just remember at one stage thinking while I was waiting for this fella Christ anything could happen here you know and a car's come in and you wonder and you know that kind of thing and you, you develop a sixth sense but I can't say and and to be fair, there have been crime crime correspondents. I'm not a crime correspondent who probably have received death threats and that sort of thing, no question. But I, I I I didn't get any threat like that. And I can't say there was any specific time where I had evidence or reason to believe there was any threat. But you'd still here and there, you'd be shitting a brick sometimes, but wh- wh- whether whether that's uh, necessarily because the, 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 there's a real threat or not is another thing. You've just co-authored the biography um in the past with David McDonald unlocked of an Irish prison officer's story from your knowledge of the prisons what's the most pressing failure of the prison system in Ireland that's a great question um I'll give you an unusual answer for me the most pressing failure and the issue that has the greatest impact on what is wrong with prisons in Ireland is the complete lack of interest of the general public. Unless pressure is put on the political system for whatever, and we've seen this in health, we've seen it in housing, we've seen it in taxation, we've seen all sorts of things. Unless the body politic believes that the public are interested in a particular thing, or unless there is what you might call a, a, a pressing a case to be made on the basis of, for example, in the area of disability, that quite obviously people are vulnerable and you have a duty as a state to do what you can in that in those kind of scenarios. Unless you've that, the system will not react. And basically, people don't care what happens in prisons. And the result you have is you have a scenario where, in the first instance, most people in prisons come from poor areas. If anybody's trying to tell me that people in poor areas have less of morality or basic uh, care for their human beings than those of us who, who come from, like myself, from a middle class background, I don't believe that for a second. There's a reason they're in prisons. And that is basically they're, 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 they're caught in a system. Um, there are fewer choices, all that sort of thing. The other thing that feeds into that is the huge number of people in prisons who basically their primary not crime, but they're the, the, the primary motivator in them being in there is mental illness. And not just addiction. Now, addiction is a huge thing, but mental illness in general of one form or another. It is an absolute scandal. The number of people, the number of women in particular, but women and men who are in our prisons simply because they have a psychological or mental condition and they come from a background that was not in a position to have that addressed and they ended up being in ended up in, in, in prison as a result. And because of the public at large's lack of interest in prisons, what do you think the public is most mistaken about with in, in respect to their view of prisons? Well, one thing they're very mistaken about is they think it's a holiday camp. I mean, you mentioned that book I wrote and, and Dave McDonald puts it very well in there describing the drudgery of daily life inside in a prison and what it... Uh, what it amounts to, your, 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 the deprivation of the most basic stuff and this notion of holiday camps. And, that. and the other element to that is the constant threat of violence. Now, leave aside the, the, the physical manifestation of prison, but imagine for a minute that you, you, you get up in the morning, you leave your 
apartment, your house or wherever. Wherever you're going, you're going to college, to work, to drink, to eat, to socialise, walk down the street to a bookshop, wherever you're going. Imagine for a minute that for most of that time, you are wondering, is somebody about to come up and whack me across the head with a, sh- a chiva or, or, or a knife or, or, or an iron bar or whatever? That's just the, 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 the violence element to it. The, the deprivation of your liberty is such a massive thing. Uh, and look, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying prison. There are people that you have to put in prisons. There are people who the only response to their crime is prison. There are people from whom society has to be protected. But in the round, they don't represent the majority of people who are in prisons. And um, this notion that it's a holiday camp is just completely off the mark. Would you be in favour of a Scandinavian model of prisons? Yeah, from what I know of it, it's more enlightened. It is definitely more enlightened, as the Scandinavians are with a lot of things. Um, I would think so, yeah. And the other issue, sorry, to do with prisons in that respect, Stephen, is, again, and you're talking about the guards, if something happens in a prison, my experience, and people deny this, but my experience is the instinct, and this goes right up to the top of the service, is to cover up, brush it under the carpet, because they know that their political masters don't want to know, don't want to hear any bad news about prisons, because... There's no plus in it. If, for example, you're talking about a lack of guards, the public want more guards, the politicians will react. If you're talking about appalling conditions in a prison, the political masters don't want to know about it because there's no votes in attempting to address it. And as far as they're concerned, there could be people out there who would respond negatively if you attempted to address it because of, of these kind of warped notions people have of what, uh, what goes on in prisons. Moving on to the Civil War, you've done a lot of reporting, you've did, did a podcast series on it. There's a personal connection to it, given your granduncle was killed in it, correct? That's right. In the midst of the centenary that we're in, do you think government commemorations of the Civil War have been sufficient? Ah, good question. Um, I think they've been very low-key. They've been very careful because of the sensitivities attached to it. They largely deferred to an or, to a, a committee that was appointed to overlook it. There are a couple of things I would take issue with. Um, I was down at Bielna for the centenary of, of the killing of Michael Collins and Michal Martin was there and he spoke and he spoke very well on behalf of Fianna Fáil and that of itself showed a healing of, of divisions that had been opened up in the Civil War. However, I thought it was a lost opportunity that Leaders from all the parties were not invited to that as as, as both a, a gesture and as a mark that, that the individual that Collins was, uh, that he should have been uh, recognised in that way. Whether they all would have gone would have been another issue, but then that would be on their back if, if they had been invited. I also have to admit that I take some issue with the way Sinn Féin have approached some of the centenary um, commemorations on the Civil War. They... I, I, I don't believe they have a, a correct purchase on it because they very much highlight the positives of the irregulars and the negatives of the free state. And I believe they see themselves as in some way having a lineage right back to the irregulars, the anti-treaty side, uh, which I don't believe is the case. But apart from anything else, the anti-treaty side was not about the North. And the other thing being... Sinn Féin and its current guys came into being in 1970 did their own set of values and what have you and everything that flowed from that no, that might be a controversial thing to say but that's my opinion on it but overall there's been sensitivity all right and I suppose the sensitivity has meant that it's been relatively low-key Do you think there's in the public at large still a culture of say nothing with respect to the Civil War I mean you think of um, the massacres like in Bally Sidi, you wrote about the massacre in Bahuks in Killarney. Do you think that culture is still prevalent in the community? I, I, no, I think we're getting past it. I, 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 I do. One noticeable thing like there last year, uh, Leo Varadkar, I think, said, as leader of Fine Gael, and tarnished as he was, that the execution, some of the executions were basically murder. No, I, I, you know, I think that was fair play. You know, that, that, that was, as I say, Mian Martin showing up at, um, at Bail Nabla. But 
like in terms of the current political environment, you have a lot of the parties there just see, well, that's a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael thing, which I don't think is accurate, you know. I mean, I'm fascinated by the Civil War. I think it was the biggest tragedy of all. Uh, my family fought on the anti-treaty side, but I'm absolutely convinced now that Griffith and Collins and their side were correct because the only other outcome could have been, even if the anti-treatyites won, would have been that the British would have returned at that stage. Um, and they were all passionate about it, you know. They, they all thought they were doing the right thing, but it set the country back enormously. And you have to remember too that in the election after the treaty debates and that 78% of people voted for pro-treaty parties and, and that's a pretty resounding majority. But I, I, I'm still very fascinated by it, but I, I, I get the impression that, and that's, that's another thing about modern politics, outside of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and Labour to a certain extent, most of the other entities, they don't identify with the state as it has evolved over the last hundred years. Not necessarily a healthy thing, and I'm sure they have their own reasons for doing so, but so they, they, they don't see any connection to the Civil War and that. President Higgins did a great series of lectures on it that probably at a different time would have got a lot more attention. But it, it, it came looking at it from as neutral as possible and looking at it through cultural, historical and trauma windows, if you want to say it that way. And uh, that was very interesting as well. There's a, a popular belief or sentiment that there's been a decline in the standard of politician over the course of the state. Would you agree with that? I, 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 do you know what it's, it's like? It's like, you won't remember, but there was a great Kerry team that won four in a row. And Tina G shows some of those matches now when you look back on it. And they were a brilliant team. Would any of them have managed on the pitch with, say, for example, the Dublin team that won five in a row there recently? The game has changed so much. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's so much now physicality, strength, etc. Transfer that to politics. Um, society has changed hugely. You know, a lot of things have. Politics in the last 10 years or since the, the economic crash of 08 has changed in a way that's, I think, unhealthy. This whole populist element of things has come in, mainly right-wing populism. And by populism, I'm talking about people who come forward with what they're saying is a very easy solution in which there'll be no pain for anyone bar a few people. All that is negative and all that is definitely has lowered politics. But the individual politicians themselves, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. Another thing that would feed into it is the calibre, because politics is changing, maybe the media has some responsibility for that, the calibre of individuals going into politics. If you were a very successful businessman now and if you'd made your money or if you were, you know, very interested in stuff and that, would you go in considering all you'd be subjected to? I'm not sure. So the calibre has changed as well. So th th that would feed into it as well, you know. Staying on contemporary politics, do you think ministers should be automatically returned to their seats like the Kian Coral is? Or maybe a by-election be held once a minister is appointed so that they can constantly, so that they could possibly concentrate in their portfolio rather than local issues, possibly not in the national interest? An excellent idea, I think. Um, I think I've seen a float, a float, funny you've said, no, I, I heard years and years ago, it's something I haven't heard recently, which is, it is a very interesting idea. There would definitely be a case for it. Um, I don't know. I used to think so, but I, I, I just don't know whether the amount of effort ministers put into their constituency affects how they do the job. Uh, sorry, it would vary totally. There'd be some who would still be like that. And, and, and I always remember when I was back around oh, five or six, no, sorry, it must have been before that, the early artists, I was living in Stony Batter on the north side of Dublin, in Bertie Hearn's constituency. And in this cottage, and I opened the door one day of an evening, seven o'clock, and who's standing in front of me with the Taoiseach of the country? And he's canvassing, giving out leaflets. And you think, man, there's something weird about this. So I, 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 it's a very good point you make, and, and, and there's definitely a case to be made for it, that um, at least you'd, you, you, you'd do that. 
And then you come back to the competition within um, constituencies and does that mean that all, too much goes into the constituency? I've always believed that. But again, it's, it's fair to say that it'll vary from politician to politician. You mentioned him there, the best, the most skillful, the most devious, the most cunning of them all. He seems to be aspiring to, well, a sense, it seems as though he's aspiring to Dev's legacy, the, the three governments and then the Aris. Yourself and Shane Coleman years ago wrote a very informative and enjoyable biography of him, Bertie Hearn and the Drumcondra Mafia. How do you explain Bertie to a generation that has come of age without any memory of him in public life? That's a great question. <laughs> it, <laughs> not easily, but it, it, it is a very good question because he's he, 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 he deserves explaining. Like, Bertie Hearn... First of all, he was lucky. He came into government. He was, he was unlucky initially, but he came into government in 97 when for a number of different reasons, there was a confluence of factors that ensured this country was effectively taking its place among the developed countries of the world for the first time ever. Economically, it was flying. Socially, it was opening up. The church, the shackles were thrown off, what have you. He got very lucky in that sense. Now, he rode his luck. He, if you look at his achievement in the Good Friday Agreement, he had unique political achievements. A great negotiator, always striving to ensure that the person on the other side of the negotiating table was getting something. And a brilliant thing in a politician, the capacity to suppress his ego. You could say what you like to Bertie, he took shit from all sorts of people. And he took it because he knew it was in the greater good to just stay quiet. An awful lot of politicians wouldn't have been able to do that. Do you know what I mean? That kind of thing. So he had brilliant qualities in that respect. He also had the common touch. No, that's a kind of a juxtaposition. He had the common touch, but I don't believe he was the man next door because there's an awful lot of politicians who are genuinely, you, you, you're talking to them and you know that they're, um, you're getting the full nine yards, so to speak. With Bertie, it was all surface. So he was brilliant at all of that. Um, but he oversaw this fantastic Celtic Tiger by the time he was gone, that's when the reassessment began. And you realise the guy was at the head of a pyramid scheme in terms of the economy, you know. And I'm sure he meant the best. But no, having said that, if he was around when the place had to be recovered, I reckon he'd have been a good man for that, notwithstanding everything. Because he, he had a great grasp of detail. He was a phenomenon. Like, he was a brilliant political animal. Uh, he had those attributes that a politician needs. But his governance was, in retrospect, how, how you, particularly the last three years before the 07 election, things went out of control and he was focused on buying the next election when he should have been focused on ensuring that the whole place wasn't going to go up, which it ultimately did. And all of that, of course, is apart from what dogged him at the tribunals. A politician on a good salary who, over a brief period of time, got possession of €200,000 and he offered explanations that were veered from the surreal to the ridiculous. Big problem there in terms of his legacy too. The legacy mightn't be finished yet? People are suggesting he go for the presidency. Personally, I'd be stunned if he went because, as I say, he has a brilliant political instinct and I don't think... The, 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 the presidency in this country is not about your grasp of anything. It's about your character. Now, you can say that's crazy. Maybe it is, but that's the way it has evolved. And it would keep coming back again and again to winning money on the horses, whip arounds, dig outs, all this stuff that he says he got the money. And he knows damn well, I don't think he'd subject himself to that. So I'd be stunned if he went. I'd be even more stunned if he won. But if there's a good outside bet, it'd be more than you'd win on the horses as he might have anyway, you know? Going back to uh, your career in journalism, how did your upbringing influence your career? Um, well, I was very fortunate in that my parents were both really, really strong in education. Whatever I wanted to do, my father said, you do whatever you want in life. You get an education and after that, do anything. If I, wanted, if I got a degree and I wanted to join a circus, he'd have backed me. In fairness, and, and my mother also. And I suppose in terms of our personal qualities, my mother was... She she wrote now and again. 
she eats books. She still does. Thankfully, she's still alive. She's a voracious reader. And that had definitely an impact. I mean, even access to uh, to books on, on that point of view had a huge impact on me altogether. And um, I, my father was a bit involved in politics earlier on in his life. And I was always interested in current affairs and that kind of thing. So, and I was very lucky. And then, as I said, I, I became an engineer and... Uh, I did that for a while and there's one or two buildings in London I still tell people to avoid. They're liable to collapse any day now after I worked on them. But even when I was 27, I, I, I had to come home and say I want to do some kind of conversion course and they were completely back me. So I was extremely fortunate in the parents um, in, 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 in that respect. You mentioned your early access to books. What books or authors most influenced, have, have most influenced your worldview? Hmm. That's, that's a tough one. Um, particular, uh, there was a magazine, McGill, that was out in the 80s that I remember when I was doing engineering, I used to read. And people like Gene Kerrigan, I think, were just exceptional altogether as a writer. He still writes in the Sunday Independent, but particularly when he was younger, he, 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 he was exceptional. Um, Vincent Brown would have influenced me. He, he, just his whole approach to journalism and that kind of thing. Um, people like Nell McCafferty and Eamon McCann, who were both from Derry, their, their journalism was something I always aspire to. And apart from that, there are American writers who really, uh, probably one of them would have been Norman Mailer, who wrote a book, The Executioner's Song, about an execution, which is just, I think he won Pulitzer or something for it, but it's just a, it's unbelievable piece of work um, he was a bore like he was a, he was a great man when he got out of, he, he found it very hard to get out of the way of his own work because he, he put himself into the stuff all the time but when he did he, he, he was uh, exceptional and then beyond that when you talk about writers people like Raymond Carver was somebody I, I would uh, always have looked up to in in, in, uh, in that respect you know but it's hard to to you come across various elements to people that you uh, you tune into, you know. Are there any stories in your career that you regret not pursuing more? Yes, always. One is it was a big guard of corruption story in Donegal, and a private detective named Billy Flynn, who was a good friend of mine. It was like something out of a movie, actually. He was hired by the people that sent him to McBurtie's. And I did a number of stories with Billy. And at one stage, Billy, I always remember, said to me, there's this thing in Donegal, will you take a look at it? And I had heard, and this shows you the power of, of rumours and that, I had heard the woman who blew the whistle and that kind of thing was a crazy woman. And I bought into it. And I didn't want to follow with Billy. So I said, ah, Billy, I'd give it a skip because I thought he was barking up the wrong tree. I was completely wrong. The woman at the centre of it was an extremely brave, conscientious person whose character was completely smeared by people in the Gardaí up there to try and discredit her. And Billy cracked that case. And it was even noticed in, in tribunal that he did. And I um, I regret not following it. I, uh, having said that, I also tell people that when McCabe came along then, I'd already messed up in one one time in that respect, so I made damn sure I wasn't going to a second time, so maybe that helped me in that respect. And of all your reporting, what story are you, are you proudest of? Oh, I don't know, Stephen. Proud? Uh, do, uh, would you be proud of something? Um, look, if you talk about the story that made the most impact, it would have to be McCabe. But you, when you're writing, and particularly when you do a column, there are weeks there when I might spend on and off two or three days coming up with an idea, researching it, putting it down on paper, rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it. And before I send it in, I look at it and I say, Jesus, that's a serious piece of work by fair play, you know. And not a person notices it. It just disappears into the ether as if it didn't exist, as if it was complete tripe. And then there are days when I have woken up on a Friday morning panicking because I haven't an idea in my head 
and I might be up at six attacking this and about ten o'clock I say right Christ you do that do that that'll do that'll do grand and you throw down the thing in an hour and put it in and say Christ I hope they don't even notice my byline on this thing and I never want to see it again and next thing Jesus that was unbelievable man that was so you haven't a clue like sorry I haven't a clue I, do you know what I mean what works what doesn't work what's good what's bad you, it, it, it's I find it impossible to know at this stage in your career and the stories you've reported on, do you have to actively go and seek out stories now? Or like, would there be many self-described whistleblowers or people they think that isn't just coming up to you? Yeah, unfortunately. And that's one of the things about if you've been on one or two big stories, you get a name. Fortunately, a lot of people do come to me. I still seek out things, but I am very fortunate in that respect. Uh, one small downside of that is uh, you have to... S- s- sift through the wheat from the chaff especially because a lot of the stuff that comes to you unfortunately people well-meaning but they have a grievance that really you can't pursue or they're wrong or it's not worth pursuing but look that's it's, it's a first world problem but i am lucky in that respect that some people do come to me and, and but i still seek out other stories and you've written two fiction crime novels what's your favorite book in that genre well, my favourite writer would have been Elmore Leonard, American writer, who, as people say, he didn't even have a style, but he had a, he was brilliant. He, you know, the humour, the characters he created, all that sort of thing. Uh, Elmore, any, any of Elmore Leonard's better books would, would, would definitely have been, um, would definitely have been one of my favourites, you know. If you were to recommend three books, fiction or non-fiction, to university students now, what would you recommend? Oh, Christ, should have given a bit of notice for that one. Uh, I would definitely recommend An Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer. Um, I would definitely recommend, uh, I'd be hard to get, and it would cost you 30 or 40 euro, I think, on the internet, Round Up the Usual Suspects by Gene Kerrigan and Derek Dunn, which is a forensic analysis of both the political situation and particularly the case of Nikki Kelly and the Salins mail train robbery where those who were described as the heavy gang were involved in interrogating him and the fallout from the court case and it really shows you in granular detail how a state can be in crisis both in terms of the police, the politics and the judiciary and it's written in a fantastic, accessible, snappy style so round up the usual suspects I keep going back to that decades later that's two. Um, oh, I can't, I, 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 I'm trying to think of a third now. And I'd like to think of, of a female journalist because brilliant journalists out there. But I, um, Janet Malcolm, the murder and the journalist is one, but which is all right, but it's not personal favourite. I, I, I'm, I'm a bit. Uh, just offhand now, if, I, if I'd have been a notice, I, I, I definitely uh, get one. But Jean uh, Kerrigan has written a number of non-fiction books about Irish journalism that is is uh, extremely good as well. You know, what advice would you give to the next generation of journalists? Don't do it. <laughs> um, I don't know. Am I in a position to give advice, Stephen? I suppose. Look, from my experience, uh one of the issues that journalists today face is the influence online and how that can impact on journalism. And in particular, I'm thinking about how I've noticed, I think I've noticed at least some journalists, younger journalists, and that's only because they're inexperienced. I was very inexperienced once. All the stuff I did wrong when I was that age. But they, they, they can present stuff or pursue stuff in a way that will reassure them it will be well received on social media and that's really not the way to go about your business the other thing is there's a tendency in general I think today for people to be far more polarised on issues on politics on culture on all that stuff and one of the fallouts from that is that the idea of objective truth gets squeezed out. Now, the obvious example is the US, and I think you mentioned before about CNN, Fox, 
people suggest you've liberal CNN, you've conservative Fox. Where does the objective truth lie? It's not as pronounced in this country and it's not as pronounced within specific media organizations, but within sections of society, it is. And if you have a more polarized society, you have people who are less inclined to hear the other side and less inclined in a journalistic sense to present stuff that is neutral and makes some effort at objectivity and balance. I think that is potentially a particular stumbling block for journalists today. The final thing is journalists today, unfortunately, I think are going to find it hard to make, harder to make a living because there are less opportunities, which means conversely and, and, and in a positive sense that those who ultimately do go through with it probably have more of a vocational element in their choice and that can only be a positive thing for, for journalism in general. Last question. In our correspondence, you sign your emails with Keep the Faith. What do you mean by that? Oh, it's just purely... Um, Purely an expression. Keep it going. Like keep her lit is the other one I do. Or keep her and they actually have the flame on Twitter. Uh, that's all. Literally. I'm not, I'm not a religious person. Not at all. I, I, and just to give you an example of what I'm talking about. I have no religion. But when I see, particularly in some section of society today, people hammering the living shit out of the Catholic Church, I think that's wrong too because Catholic Church committed a lot of crimes in various elements of the institution. But there's an awful lot of people who have nothing to do with that. And it's a different place today. And you know something? Sometimes I wish I had religion because you can see it's a positive element in people's lives. But I don't have it. And that's grand. But I also say fair play to people who do. And they need to be treated the same as everybody else. Even in our, our some people would suggest, hyper-secularized society. Very good. Thank you very much, Mick. Thanks very much for having me, Stephen. There's an awful lot of talk with Dan there.